Uh, it is good to, to see. Um, I, it feels like a masquerade ball, I suppose, on some level, but it is good to see uh, all of you here this morning. And kidding aside with Kevin, I have been following a bit of the journey that you've been in as a church in the book of Exodus, and specifically related to matters of justice. So as Kevin and I were talking about my time this morning, he had sent me this text this week. I'll read it because it'll set a bit of the context for where we're headed and what we'll talk about. So he sent me this this last week. Hey, Peter. As you prepare for your message, we are coming to the very end of our study in Exodus. So much of it is about justice. Moses came and gave opportunity after opportunity to do what was right, which would bring about, and remember this phrase, right relationship with God and with Israel. As Rob Vischer said in the podcast that Kevin's been doing with him, justice is simply about right relationships. And so it's that phrase, right relationships, as we talk about social justice this morning, that forms the context for that. And it seems to be a pretty relevant topic. I don't know how your news feeds are these days, but mine are constantly lit up with the latest news from some of the protests in our cities or the boycotts of our professional sports teams, the latest rhetoric from our politicians. So it's going to be a dicey, dodgy, heated, relevant kind of topic, and a couple of quick intro comments then before we pray and sort of jump into these waters. The comments are this. First, I will not, maybe to the disappointment of some of you, I will not be supporting a political side this morning. If you hope that I'm here to express sympathy or support for either President Trump or for Black Lives Matter, you will leave disappointed. Second, and probably more importantly, before we pray, I want to just uh, cite a passage of scripture that will serve as an underpinning that I'll refer to from time to time throughout the course of the morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians, and it reminds us of actually who we are related to these topics of the day. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is telling the Corinthian people, remember this, that you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, you, as the people of God following Jesus, are ambassadors of that reconciliation as though God himself was making his very appeal through you. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. So let's pray here as we get started and jump in to the heated topic of the day. God, for uh, wisdom in the voice of the shepherd to dwell among us this morning, we pray. Lead us and guide us with only those things that you from your kingdom can provide. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. It's quiet in here. <laughs> Where are we going? Oh, one of the greatest challenges actually uh, faces the church in nearly any generation when you look back through history is how to be prophetic within the great complexities uh, uh, of a given landscape. And what I mean by prophetic, I don't mean speaking about the future. I mean the capacity to speak truth from God's kingdom into the social circumstances of the day. Because social landscapes can change very quickly. And with those changes often comes the demand to react and to respond. What do we as a church think about these things? What side should we take? The social landscape changes around us and we begin to understandably feel angst and we want answers and sometimes we want them now. The pastor should be speaking on this stuff. But if we're honest, the church, I think, is rarely equipped to give a now answer 
to what is a new social reality. It doesn't mean the church is bad. It just means that when the social landscape changes as quickly as it sometimes does, the people are usually and understandably caught a bit unprepared. New demands of uh, any kind usually catch us unprepared. I mean, take, for example, the coronavirus. I know it's not a, a Christian situation, but this caught us all entirely unprepared in a variety of ways. And if you look back at how we reacted in the heat of the moment some six months ago and some of, of what we said and what we thought about the virus, we simply just didn't know that much. But there was this understandable pressure to react immediately. We had to deal with something that was right in front of us. And if we look back at the kinds of things we said about the virus six months ago, we'd probably chuckle a little bit simply because we know so much more today. Even our, our best epidemiologists back then have had to change and shift their mes- message, again, understandably so, because the evidence changes. The, you get more evidence. Nobody knew that your toes might swell up from this thing, right? And more evidence comes, and so how you deal and how you react shifts with that. But you can see that there's a risk that if you react too quickly before you have enough evidence, you might find yourselves in a situation that brings greater pain and turmoil into it. Think of another example uh, of this when something changes. I remember when I was teaching my sexuality class at the University of Northwestern and prior to that at Bethel, and when the marriage amendment became the law of the land that legalized gay marriage, I, as a professor in this topic, was caught entirely unprepared. I had not had to think at all about gay marriage and the implications of that. And as you might imagine, when I got to my class that year and I do a question and answer time with my students, uh, every question that came up in class was, how do we think about this? React, respond, Kapsner. What are we supposed to do? The landscape has changed so quickly. Give us something to stand on. And I look back at that time and honestly, it had changed so quickly I didn't know. I mean, I knew what I had grown up with. I knew that the Bible had said that gay marriage was wrong, but even that was becoming a bit confusing because there were so many churches that were also appealing to the Bible and saying that gay marriage is actually okay. And so my students were pressing on me to respond, and it was really difficult to not respond in the moment simply because I didn't have the evidence that I felt I needed in that. The landscape had changed so quickly, and I knew I was running a risk of responding too quickly as a result. And sometimes I think we feel that pressure to respond because we want to be seen as relevant, right? We want to be seen as sort of addressing the issues of the day. But I remember that it took about two years after that time to start looking at the scriptures and the history of sexuality and a bit about the science and human experience. And it wasn't until two years later and starting to look at the evidence that could help guide thinking that I finally felt at least mildly prepared and equipped to deal with that topic. I still landed on the side where marriage is only for male and female, but I suddenly uh, knew a lot more about it. There's such pressure to react, especially when the situation is hot. And undoubtedly, the situation is hot, related to social justice right now. And there's a lot of demands to react and to respond as the church. People want answers. But do we risk in trying to give too quick of answers 
in too quickly aligning ourselves with this party or that, or this voice or that, or this platform or that, or this author or that, or this podcaster or that, do we risk maybe missing some of the key points as ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom where we actually can bring hope and healing and peace? Would it maybe be better to just step back for a minute and try to look at some of the evidence that's there that could help inform us to be those ambassadors? It was once said of C.S. Lewis that the reason why he was so effective in his articulation about the kingdom was that he had the intellectual honesty to pursue evidence wherever it may lead him. But that evidence, to pursue it, can take a long time. It's hardly ever a now reaction. But if you think about it in this way, I read that or quoted that passage at the beginning of our service that we are ambassadors of a kingdom in a foreign land and you would never send an ambassador from your home country into a foreign land without fully equipping that ambassador to to live life in that foreign land representing the realities of their kingdom. They get eaten alive. And I would suggest that in reacting too quickly... If we're not equipped as citizens of heaven to be ambassadors in a kingdom in a world that is controlled by principalities and powers that maybe we would miss something. And don't hear me say at all that we should be putting off this conversation of social justice. It is now, but the way we approach it, we may need to step back for just a second this morning and consider some of the evidence that might help us be equipped as a family and as people and as a church to really bring the kind of reconciling wholeness and healing and hope and health that we want to bring. Is anybody else confused by this topic <laughs> this morning in social justice? I think most of us are. So for the rest of the morning, in whatever way possible, without being dogmatic, I'm not here to land on a side. I certainly am not going to tell you how to think about these things. What I would like to do is just give you three considerations about how we can move forward as a church. Three bits of evidence, uh, three points, if you will, though you think you know me well enough to know I hate a three-point <laughs> sermon. But they're there, and so I'll give them. Uh, but three consideration bits of evidence that might be helpful in shaping our response to all of this heat of social justice. The first one is this. We'll consider if there's anything we can learn from the evidence of church history and how the church in the past has engaged with culture and with social power. So that's number one. How did the church engage in the past with social power? Number two, what voices should we be listening to in this time? And should we consider who might be discipling us? Okay, so that's number two. And number three, what can we learn from Scripture about justice and how kingdom justice might actually, at the end of the day, look very different than American justice? Okay, so what can we learn from the church? Who are the voices that are discipling us? And what can we learn about kingdom justice and how it might be different than American justice? So if that is a framework, we can uh, get into this first consideration, this first evidence, this first point from church history about how the past might inform the present. And fortunately, this one's pretty straightforward. The evidence is that the church has an abysmal track record when it gets aligned with the social and political powers of the day. When the church co-ops or aligns with or gives a full-throated support to a political or social or secular platform, it historically is always to the detriment of the church. History is littered with examples of this. I'll give you just a couple of them. First one from Rome 
in 311 AD, the Roman emperor, some of you might know, Constantine, legalized Christianity. And in so doing, he ended the horrific persecution of Christians and elevated the Christians into platforms of social and political power. This is great, right? Christians are finally back in power socially and politically. And Constantine, for his part, showered them with such wealth and such power, way better than persecution for the Christians. Well, with this sudden change... What it actually resulted in back in that time were two things. One is that the Christians under the rule of Constantine began to go out and force conversion through bloodshed. And Constantine, who is a very shrewd leader, also sought to consolidate his theological influence by saying every Christian everywhere throughout the Roman Empire needs to be thinking the same way about theological matters. For Constantine, it wasn't about trying to find the truth. It was simply to consolidate his power. And in so doing, it led to tremendous divisions, heresy claims, and excommunications of many in the church. And the church had split like it hadn't before. Christianity was wildly influential in the time of persecution as it was bringing hope and healing in the midst of the suffering. It was wildly influential in bringing pain and suffering when it was in the midst of social power. So the result of Christians aligning with Constantine was bloodshed and division in the church. Fast forward, second one, to about 1096 through 1300 AD, and we have those infamous crusades, about eight in all, in which Christians and Muslims were at war for control of Jerusalem, but also for who would maintain social power in Europe. The result of the church trying to stamp out the Muslims at that time, and aligning with the political and social powers of the day, a million people were killed. And to this day, the Crusades remains an event that people in modern, western, secularized societies refer to when they say, you see, the church is always backwards and always getting it wrong. Third one in the French Revolution of the 1970s, the church had quite a bit of control in France at that time. So much so as they aligned with the government and the political powers of the day that they were able to levy a forced 10% tithe on the farmers at that time, which you'd imagine went over really well with the farmers. And so finally, the farmers rose up and they decided to revolt. And in their revolt, the church started feeling a slippage of their social power. So what did they do? They decided to align with the revolutionaries. And that worked for a little while as they maintained their social power, but given a few years, the revolutionaries went ahead and turned against the church and drove out the church altogether. So the result of the church aligning itself with social and political powers, well, if you go to France now, and I'm sure some of you have been there, you'll see that the church really has no place in French society anymore, and these beautiful old cathedrals are now museums and relics of of a now irrelevant past. It was the church that took the hit not France. Nazi Germany, the last one, uh, some of you may know that the church did a deal, deal with Hitler in the early phases of Nazi Germany so they could maintain their land and their social power, believing that ultimately they would prove to be on the right side of history. You ever hear that phrase these days? Church, we've got to be on the right side of history. <laughs> the church certainly thought they were at that time. And yet they helped contribute to the horrors of the Holocaust. So just a few examples 
we examine the evidence, how do we think about these things of social justice? Well, maybe we should at least be a little wary of aligning ourselves with any given political or social platform. Because if the church's record against the kingdoms of this world when it aligns would be a baseball season, I think they would be 0 and 162. Or 0 and, 1, 0 and 60, I suppose, for this, this pandemic season, right? So maybe what we learn from evidence number one is the church maybe should be careful in aligning too closely with President Trump and the Republican Party. And maybe the church should be wary in aligning too closely with the Democratic Party or Black Lives Matter. It's tempting. I get it. But if the past bears any representative sample, it suggests it's always a terrible idea for the church. And I think it might be the height of arrogance to suggest that we would avoid repeating those patterns if we did the same thing today. And there's really actually, at the end of the day, a very simple reason as to why. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors of that place, and our ways of life are always different. So to blend the ways of life of Jesus' kingdom with the ways of life in this world has always been to the detriment of the church every single time. And I guess it makes sense on some level, a sermon for a different time, is that maybe the real battle here is not against flesh and blood. Maybe the real battle here is not Republican against Democrat. Maybe there's something else going on in this world from which all of these political and social unrest movements and and all the anger is actually distracting us from about what's really going on. When Paul talks about our battle is not against flesh and blood. Maybe there's a different battle going on, but again, a different sermon for a, a different time. Suggest right now, evidence number one, as you consider how you want to move forward with all of these platforms of social justice and where to align and with whom, the evidence from history and the church suggests that it's always been to the detriment of the church when it aligns with the kingdoms of the day. Point number two, then, and somewhat related to that, uh, is this from the kingdoms of the day. Remember I said that uh, talk about who disciples us, and maybe we need to be careful about who disciples us. And what I mean by that is a disciple or a disciple is just simply a follower of another person and that person's way of life and that person's way of thinking. And so by definition, most of us, myself included, if we're honest, are disciples of a lot of different people. A lot of different people have influenced our thinking and our ways of life. And, and as we are discipled by these people, they end up sort of forming how we act and react in the moment. And when you think about the, the primary disciplers in our culture, a few of them come to mind for me. One of them is the news. News outlets are primary voices of discipleship in our culture. Whether they be Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, think about the millions of people that Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow are discipling every day. Millions listen to them, but are they trustworthy voices of discipleship? Are they trustworthy for understanding what it means to be an ambassador in God's kingdom in the midst of this desperate need for reconciliation? I've been a member, I think some of you know, of the news media for the past 10 years or so, both broadcast and in print. And seeing the news from the inside of the news, I think I can safely say that the news is coming most often from a very intentional and very specific angle that is designed to catch listeners in order to drive revenue. 
The news people know exactly how to shape their words and shape their stories in order to keep people listening and to influence them. I remember one day I was sitting courtside as part of the news media team for the Minnesota Timberwolves, and I was writing an article for NBA.com, and there was this ebb and flow in the game, but I realized as the game was progressing that one sentence in my article would shape the the perception of what happened in that game and whether that game was a success or a failure for the Minnesota Timberwolves. That one, one sentence. And yet there's probably other news members there that were writing from a different angle. We all saw the same game. And yet if you read my article versus somebody versus somebody, you would come to very different conclusions. Why? Because perception is being shaped. I remember a, a reporter from a major news organization came to Bethel to speak one day, and, and he said the reason why he got into journalism was because he wanted to shape their perceptions of the social landscape. I guess I thought journalism was about the facts. But being on the inside of it, unfortunately, it's more often a money-making venture and not a reliable source for understanding what kingdom justice might be. Likewise, I'm sure this will be nice and controversial. Best-selling authors and podcasters are huge sources of discipleship, are they not? <laughs> I mean, I think about how often I get a text from a friend in a given week, you've got to listen to this podcast. They're everywhere. And I'd suggest that we might, as a church, have to be equally careful because it's a little mind-boggling to me. I'll say more about this in a minute. For example, how Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility book has come to be the defining thought on racism in our country not just for the culture, but for many churches today. She has discipled us in substantial ways. D'Angelo is a non-Christian sociologist by practice. Now, that's not bad, and it doesn't even mean that she doesn't have some good points. But my postgraduate work was in sociology, the very same field, at the University of Edinburgh, and I like the field, but sociology is a terribly unreliable discipline. It's a terribly unreliable discipline. Sociologists come to their conclusions and points of view through a research methodology called qualitative research. Now, that's a big mouthful, okay? But what it means is that sociologists come to their conclusions simply by talking to certain subsets of people and maybe conducting a few surveys. Now, I don't have time to get into all the problems with this, but to extrapolate large and defining and dogmatic statements about what is true about all people coming from that place of that kind of research, not to mention the corruption that goes on in universities in academic research due to the pressures to get tenure and to publish your articles. Well, it would be almost comical given the unreliability of the approach if it wasn't so scary that we would yield our discipleship to any academic or any sociologist and let them become the defining voice for millions of people. Point is this, I would suggest in the bits of evidence that we have that as you think about who you are as a church related to social justice, be careful who disciples you. Hannity and Maddow, Oprah, our favorite podcasters and authors, I'm not saying they're all unhelpful, (laughs) But to critically think about what they're saying, it's interesting, is it not, that both socialists and capitalists claim that Jesus would support them. Both sides do. People are always using Jesus to support their existing ideas rather than letting Jesus inform their existing ideas. What would it mean to be discipled by 
him? What would it mean to extract ourselves from all the voices of the podcasters and the authors and the academics and the news people and simply try to hear the voice of our shepherd as it exists to guide us in the midst of what is an incredible challenge of social justice? Could we then find some bit of reconciliation? Which brings us to the third part of the morning, third bit of evidence for you, is that if we look in the scripture, we might see that kingdom justice and American justice are actually two very different kinds of things. Diving into this a bit, it's helpful to know that when we read a word in scripture translated to us in the English language, that word, though it appears to be the same word in our English language, often has a very different meaning back then when the authors were writing it versus the meaning we might have for it today. I hope that makes sense on some level. I can give an example. Uh, for those of you that have been to the United Kingdom and we lived in Scotland for a little while, both of them are speaking English. And when we moved there, we thought, no problem. We don't have to learn a new language except the language was new every day in terms of how they say things and how different it is. For example, trainers in the United States are what? They're people that get you into shape. Trainers in Scotland are tennis shoes. Took me forever to get that one. Vests in the United States are sweaters or jackets that are sleeveless. Vests in Scotland are undergarments. That can be confusing. Smart in the USA means intelligent. Smart in Scotland means to be well-dressed. Now, I had no idea. I remember when my two youngest kids, Caleb is here today, but his sister Anna too, there was a child's book in Scotland called The Smartest Giant in Town. And I picked up this book and I would read him at night and, and it was this giant who was incredibly well-dressed. He had a bow tie and suspenders and he was a really uh, smartly dressed giant. But I didn't know that that's what smart meant. And in the story, the giant who has all these beautiful clothes begins to give his clothes away to his friends. And I kept thinking, he's the dumbest giant in town. What is he? I literally did not understand this story until nine months into it. And I was like, oh, this wasn't about being smart like clever. This was smart because he was really well-dressed. I had no idea I was living a lie. (laughs) Same thing about biblical words and how they translate into our English. I'll give you a few examples. Prosper in America means to have wealth and financial means. Prosper in the biblical text means that you are whole and reconciled and lacking in nothing, whether you have or do not have wealth or financial means. And yet think about the theology of prosperity and flourishing that we've developed as a country. To prosper means to have wealth. And it's sort of like partner word to be blessed, right? To be blessed in America means that good things are happening to you. To be blessed in the scripture simply means that you are happy and whole, independent of the things that are happening to you. Very different ideas. And if you're not careful, if you just sort of co-opt one word and assume it means the same word, you end up walking down pathways that maybe are more destructive than helpful. Love in America tends to mean endorsement and agreement with. You're a hater, right, if you disagree with me. But you're filled with love if you agree with me. Love in the kingdom, in the biblical reference, is a tender-hearted, fierce, never-forsaking passion that seeks the wholeness or the reconciled reality of another ahead of oneself. It's not about agreement, it's about wholeness. And so likewise, relevant for this morning, justice in America tends to mean equal treatment under the law 
and equal opportunity to pursue happiness according to one's own values. Say that one more time. American justice tends to mean equal treatment under the law and equal opportunity to pursue happiness according to one's own values. Now, by contrast, it's interesting when you look in the scriptures, when you see that word justice appear in the original Hebrew language, it's the Hebrew word tzedek. And it's actually the very same word as righteousness. Righteousness and judgment are syn- right, righteousness and justice are synonyms within the text. And to be righteous means that you are in a rightly ordered relationship with God and another person. Righteousness means justice, and justice means to be in a rightly ordered relationship. So we're walking justly when we're walking in rightly ordered relationships, but that begs begs the question, what does it mean to be walking in a rightly ordered relationship according to the metrics of God's kingdom, not to the metrics of this world? In a brilliant article released recently, Timothy Keller points out the futility of American versions of justice for creating right relationships by demonstrating that we can have social and legal fairness and yet still not be in right relationship with each other. Because the American legal justicism is based on individualism. It's based on the individual has rights that are above all else. And that philosophy is captured in the statement that is probably the unofficial American slogan, you can be whatever you want to be. And if a legal system or an opportunity or something gets in your way, you have every right to say that that is unjust given those metrics. But the problem is with that is that you can be whatever you want to be. It's absent from the scriptures. You cannot find it in the Bible. And in fact, in Jesus's kingdom versus the kingdoms of this world, we are what? We are bondservants to a king. We've been bought with a price. We follow his lead. We are reconcilers of his kingdom, whether or not we are being treated justly in a given moment. In this right here, we begin to see the sharp contrast between American versions of justice and kingdom versions of justice. Don't hear me say that legal fairness and social opportunity and pursuing those things is wrong. I'm just saying that kingdom justice is much bigger. It's much more robust. It's much more hopeful. Because right relationships in the kingdom does not simply mean that everything is fair. Right relationships in the kingdom means that everything is reconciled. Right relationships in America means that everything is fair. Right relationships in the kingdom means everything is reconciled. Stupid example, maybe that highlights this contrast. Have you ever seen two kids play a game? (laughs) And I confess at 49 years old, when I'm playing with my now 14-year-old son some games sometimes, I might be liable to say something like, when I lose, what? It's not fair! It's not fair! And you're mad, and I, you know, I remember playing that old board game, Risk, right? I mean, if that game won't bring out hatred in another person, I don't know what will. I remember when I'd start falling behind and somebody would break the treaty between Asia and Australia that we had so judiciously put in place to not harm each other, and somebody begins to attack, immediately I would go global catastrophe and just shake the whole board with an earthquake. It was awesome. <laughs> hated each other. My, my mom actually, and hi mom, I'm sure you're listening. I know you love it when I call you out. So welcome to Linda Kapsner. I'm sure she's watching. But my mom once threw that game in the garbage. She called it hate. <laughs> and my brother and I sort of quietly fished it out in the middle of the rain just to make sure it didn't get warped. But 
we could create fairness between us and still hate each other in the game. You ever done that as a parent for your kids? Put down rules so everything is fair, right? It solves everything, doesn't it? Except you ever watch those kids after you've put fair rules in place? They're still mad at each other. So, oh. You see, you can have perfect fairness and you can still hate one another. You can have perfect opportunity that is shared and still seek to destroy each other. Start striking at the heart of the difference between American justice. Not bad. Not bad at all to be pursuing legal fairness and social opportunity. But it isn't kingdom justice. Kingdom justice is bigger than that. Kingdom justice is about reconciliation, and it is the kind of reconciliation that Paul says we are ambassadors of. And so kingdom justice is not animated by fairness. It's animated by something very different. It's something that is a characteristic with which Jesus' kingdom pulsates. It's what Jesus fervently prayers, prays for in his followers. It's what Paul deeply desires the people of Ephesus to be rooted in. It's the one way people will know that we're Christian. It is a single fruit with multiple manifestations. It is the one thing that actually is a characteristic of God, not just a characteristic, but the very essence of God. All the law and all the prophets hang on it. The animating force of reconciliation, if you don't have it, you can't actually know God, says First John. The animating force is love. A tender-hearted, fierce, never-forsaking passion in which one is willing to give up everything for the sake of another, that they might too be reconciled. To be walking justly in the kingdom is to be walking in love independent of the circumstances. As I've said, we could have an entirely fair legal system, and we should. And we could have an entirely fair system of social opportunity, and we should. But that doesn't mean we're walking in kingdom justice. It just means things are fair. We can remain wholly unreconciled to God and to one another, even if things are entirely fair. But love, (laughs) true reconciling love, can manifest itself in the midst of any unfairness and can be animated in the midst of any circumstance. Jesus demonstrated justice when he stood in front of the Sanhedrin and was being accused unfairly and unjustly. And in those moments, Jesus never tried to take on the perpetrators of the oppression, nor did he say, we cannot have peace until you treat me with justice. He was operating on an entirely different continuum, entirely independent of the kinds of justice we see today. You see, he was operating out of love, a desire that human beings would be reconciled with one another in love, seeing each other through the lens of a passionate, never-forsaking desire that another person would be whole. And it can pervade regardless of the circumstances. I'm guessing some of this is probably hard to think about. I know uh, risk a lot in trying to say some of these things out loud. I don't always like the monological sermon because it's much more fun to sit in dialogue. So again, if we can find Kevin's house, I invite you all over. Keep your masks on and we'll just go over there afterwards. Keep uh, chatting about that. But I hope that some of the evidence here, those three bits, can help inform and equip you a little bit about how to proceed in social justice. This isn't backing off from it. It is maybe we need to think about what we think about a little bit on this. And maybe we could learn a few things from church history that whenever it aligned itself with the social and political powers of the day, it always was to the detriment of the church. And maybe if we're honest with ourselves, myself included, I have a lot of voices that disciple me, very few of which are the voice of our shepherd. 
And if I'm honest with myself, I can see that fairness, though important, doesn't lead to reconciliation naturally. Kingdom justice is much bigger than that. It's about reconciling with God and one another in the context of love, which brings some final comments this morning. Invite Taylor and the team back up with just at least a little bit of application with this. Say these words that hopefully can highlight a bit about the expansive possibility of kingdom justice that includes fairness, but is much bigger than that. When a Christian turns a blind eye or a blind heart to the needs of those suffering in some way, they are not operating from kingdom justice. When a Christian sarcastically or derisively maligns the church or a conservative political party, they are not operating from kingdom justice. There is no love there. If one cannot authentically desire the wholeness of both President Trump and the Portland Antifa member and shed a tear for both of them, you don't know what kingdom justice is. But if you're anchored in love, you will be anchored in justice. It's how the kingdom of which we are ambassadors works. And if we grow and listen to the voice of our shepherd in justice, we might find ourselves bringing food to a hungry family without the need for government policy. We might find ourselves ministering to the wealthy but hollowed-out business person whose life is in tatters after years of pursuing wealth. And both of those things are kingdom justice because it's about reconciliation and love, not only about fairness. If we grow in love and listen to our shepherd's voice, we might find ourselves ministering to the adolescent who's cutting themselves in anxiety. Or the woman who's had an abortion. Or the black man being beaten by police or a police officer's family being left behind because their life was taken away through the violence of a mob, or the immigrant fleeing the gang horrors of their country, or the woman being trafficked in by the illegal people coming across the border, or an MS-13 member who is now in jail. Ministering to all of them is kingdom justice, everyone. If we grow in love and listen to our shepherd's voice, we might find ourselves helping a church leader caught in infidelity and also helping the spouse who is devastated by it. We'll minister to the desperate parent that doesn't know what to do with their hurting child, a teacher that doesn't know how to teach sex ed, a mentally ill person with nowhere to go, a family grieving the sudden suicide of a loved one. All of those things are kingdom justice. So much bigger than how it's used in our country. We'll minister to the wife that lost her husband to the ravages of COVID or the father that loses their son at the horrors of a late night call about the accident. The person who lost their job, or a person without a home. The kingdoms of darkness in this world are filled with misery and pain and suffering. There will be no shortage of opportunities for us to walk in kingdom justice, which is to walk in the reconciling love of the Father. Right relationships through legal fairness is a noble goal, but it can't touch the justice that is available in the kingdom. Kingdom justice moves in grace, it pursues the truth. It moves in love in all manners of brokenness. Never in anger. Never in hatred. Never pursuing power. Never with sarcasm. It is patient and long-suffering. It is ever hoping. It is ever enduring. And it brings healing and hope until the day when, when our king returns and then sets everything right. 
And until that day, we as the church have one job. We are ambassadors of that reconciling present and future kingdom, regardless of what is going on in this world and who is in power. We operate on an entirely different continuum altogether. For we are ambassadors of reconciliation until our king should return.